Hello, and welcome to episode 46 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today from Film for Thought is Amy Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, all things considered. How are you? I'm pretty good. This is by far the earliest I have been awake, you know, in the last two months since quarantine has started. So I think I'm, I'm revving to go and I'm excited for this conversation. So I should be okay. You should be all right. <laughs> yeah. So for the listeners, welcome to another top five countdown episode. This week, Amy and I will be running through our top five Disney animated films of all time. Amy, I thought this was a perfect topic for you to be a guest on because you've recently started a Disney animation marathon, which I would definitely recommend checking out on her website. Is there anything you want to say about that? Uh, Yeah, so I was struggling to come up with content because obviously this is being recorded during quarantine and COVID-19. So we just got Disney Plus in the UK and I've always wanted to just watch every single Disney movie from start to finish. So I kind of figured now is the perfect time to kind of get to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. So where are you in your rewatch right now? I've only done three or four. I'm just heading up to Dumbo right now. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to see where that goes. And I, I think that's a really brilliant idea, especially with like so much time on your hand in Disney movies, especially the earlier ones are so just easy to digest when you're working or doing whatever, you know? Oh, absolutely. I think right now we all need a pick-me-up and what better pick-me-up in Disney. Yeah. <laughs> so to be clear, when we say the top five Disney animated films of all time, we are talking about Walt Disney Animated Studios feature films only. So for this conversation, Pixar will be off the table as well as any other like, you know, Disney related properties. Yes. And in case this is your first episode in the top five format, I'll explain how it's going to go. Amy and I will take turns counting down our top five films, starting at number five. And in the likely case of overlapping entries, we'll discuss the film the first time it appears on either of our lists. So, of course, these lists are personally and uh, completely subjective. So keep that in mind. And we will be talking about the films in detail. So you can expect spoilers for some of these films because they are at this point almost 100 years old. I will provide timestamps in the show notes for each film in the event that you do want to skip a section to avoid spoilers on that specific film. And lastly, we will be skipping the usual point two section to give us more time to discuss some of these films. So with that giant spiel out of the way, let's jump straight in. Perfect. So since 1937, the Walt Disney Animation Studios has made 58 feature films, and we were each tasked with whittling this collection down to our top five. So Amy, when I suggested this topic to you for the first time, you seemed to have a list like ready to go. Yes. Uh, was that list easy for you to make or are like are there five films that are distinctly stand above the rest of them? For me, yes. They're just the five I've grown up watching since I was a kid. The toughest one is just deciding between five and six, which one is actually just not going to make the list. <laughs> and so did you have a specific criteria that you used for the list or was it kind of just based on gut feeling? 
it's more just based on pure enjoyment for me. The ones I've watched the most, the ones I've grown up with, the ones that have a true place in my heart. Yeah, this list is really tough, I think, because it's so... Like Disney movies have so much nostalgia, I think, for everybody. So if you ask any one person, I'm sure their top five is going to be completely different because like the, you know, as far as objective quality in film goes, there's not really objective quality. But so many of these Disney films are just so good that I could see an argument for like the top five of most like a top five combination of most Disney films. Oh, yeah. And I know I've got some like controversial opinions as well in terms of my list and what's not in there. Oh, wow. Interesting. I am excited to hear that. So why don't we just hop straight in with your number five? Yeah, so my number five film is Hercules. I'm too old to get mixed up in this stuff again. But if I don't become a true hero, I'll never be able to rejoin my father, Zeus. Hold it. Zeus is your father, right? Uh-huh. <coughs> Zeus, the big guy. He's your daddy. <laughs> Mr. Lightning Bolts. Read me a book, would you, dad, dad? <laughs> Once upon a time. <laughs> it's the truth. Police. Which is something I don't see on many people's top five or top tens. But to me, it has the best soundtrack of any Disney movie. That's a bold claim. <laughs> yeah. Very bold. Yeah. I, I Hercules is not on my list. I considered it. Um, I, I do think it's one of the underappreciated ones from that kind of like Disney Renaissance era. Oh, absolutely. Which one's your favorite song in that? Uh, probably Go the Distance. I'm still annoyed to this day that that song had to compete against Titanic for best song at the Oscars <laughs> and there had no chance. <laughs> yeah, I love the uh, I Won't Say I'm In Love. I think that's oh, yeah. a great song. Oh, and Zero to Hero. Yeah, now I'm just thinking about everything. So yeah. uh, what about like non-music wise? So is this one that you just like, the, you think the music carries the film? It does, but it's also very different to a lot of the Disney films, especially in that time in terms of even the art style, the way the story's structured. Overall, it's just fantastic. And we talk about these great Disney villains in like the Renaissance period. People mm -hmm. don't give Hades enough credit because that is a brilliant like design and truly evil villain. Yeah, I really love Hades. And I think you're right. His design is great, but I am dreading his live action design because I'm a little worried that it's going to just look super off, you know? The genie was hard enough to pull off. I don't know how you pull off Hades, in all fairness. Yeah, it, it seems like it's going to be really tough. But I, I mean, ever since they announced like all the live action properties, I've been like clamoring for a Hercules live action one for some reason that I, I just hope, I don't know, I, I see that there's a lot of potential in that as a live action if it's not just a shot for shot. I just want Danny DeVito and I'll be happy. Like, if they don't get Danny DeVito on board, I'm not going to be sold with this at all. So you don't think anybody else can play Phil? N no. It's like a Mufasa kind of thing? Yeah. All right, so your number five was Hercules, and I believe that's from what, like 96 maybe? 97 to 98. 97. Cool. So my number five, I was trying to figure out whether I wanted to include this film on the list, and I decided to just... Go with my heart. So I chose my number five is Frozen from 2013. I was not expecting that at all. That did not make <laughs> my list. Okay. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, talking about the music in Hercules, I think this is an example of a Disney film where the music sort of makes the film. And I just absolutely love the soundtrack of Frozen. 
And I think that Indina Menzel is just like immensely talented and you put her in anything and she's going to, you know, if she sings in it, she's going to elevate the movie to a level that's like definitely worth considering for a top five. But I also just really like that this film has a pretty good twist. I think it's a refreshing take on the princess story uh, where, you know, you don't have this central romance of the film that's driving the most of the drama. I think, you know, the main story of this is about Anna and Elsa and their relationship as sisters and their love between the two of them. So I think that this is a really good kind of twist on the Disney tale. I do really enjoy it. I hated seeing, especially recently, people seeming to think it's cool to hate the music and to hate the story of Frozen just because it became so popular. Because overall, it is a really strong Disney film. I just think a lot of people now think it's the popular choice for little kids and too childish, which it's not at all. Yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people just got really sick of hearing Let It Go. And then it sort of became this thing that's like, it's so popular that when something becomes so popular, it's really cool for people, especially on Twitter, to hate on it and be like, oh, it's actually overrated. And I mean, I think Let It Go is actually a really, really good song. It's really clever. And, you know, it actually has to do with character development and things like that so it's not just like a a little fluffy song like you know some of the other songs and maybe like frozen 2 for example but yeah i I think i think the movie in general is really good and at least as far as the first film is concerned i think olaf is an excellent side character i think that's another one of those characters that a lot of people because he got so much popularity and kids loved him so much like people started to get really annoyed with olaf um you know, with the frozen short in front of Coco and all of those things. But I think within the the first film itself, I think he has a really good presence in the film. And honestly, Olaf's the best part of Frozen 2. Like that sequence where he's reenacting the first Frozen film is the best part of that film. Yes. <laughs> and then the uh, post credit scene where he's like telling the story of Frozen 2, the little baby snowman and the snow monster. Yeah, honestly, I think without Olaf, Frozen 2 would have just not been as strong i love the music in frozen 2 also and the animation but i agree that yeah (laughs) olaf is is he he adds a lot of like humor to a film where because like a lot of the other characters in frozen are a little more serious and they're not quite as funny except maybe like Kristoff and sven yeah but i i think olaf is really funny to think about because i mean this isn't like a novel observation but elsa created life with her powers which is A thing that happens and we know because of like what happens in Frozen 2 that if Elsa dies, then Olaf dies. So that's a pretty, I don't know, it's it's a pretty bizarre power to just kind of put on a lady who has ice powers. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So my number five is Frozen and that was from 2013. Amy, what's your number four? So the tough part of this list was four and three because technically I claim them both as three because they came out the same year. I watched them both the same amount and I loved both of their like sources as well. Okay. But for this list, I've put number four as Peter Pan. Just a little bit of pixie dust. Now, think of the happiest things. It's the same as having wings. Let's all try it just once more. Look, we're rising off the floor. Jim and me. Oh, my. We can fly. You can fly. We can fly. Okay. 
So that's that's an older one, right? 1950 what? 52, I think. Okay. 50 or 52, but between then. So what works with Peter Pan? Uh, I think I loved as a kid seeing my home country represented. Like every other <laughs> Disney movie seemed to be a far off land or America or anything of that sort. And then Peter Pan was London, if anyone doesn't know I'm from the UK. So I think there was like a special charm, like a British charm that came with that movie. And once again, the music, the story, I loved the Peter Pan book by J.M. Barry. Just all that tied together really nicely. Yeah, that's one that I haven't seen for a really long time. I definitely should rewatch it. Uh, is Do you think it's this film that still holds up, you know, years later? When's the most recent time that you've seen it? Uh, a few years ago, but I can't wait to rewatch it. Uh, there's one scene in particular that yeah, it doesn't hold up to this day, but... I believe I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, you will be. And then, aside from that, though, I still think the charm and the magic and the whole idea of Neverland is something we still love to this day. Yeah, I rewatched a couple of the older ones in preparation for this because I wanted to include a couple older ones on my list. And it is surprising how great the animation still looks. Like, I mean, obviously it doesn't look like Frozen 2, but I mean, the animation through all Disney movies, even ones as early as like Cinderella are just gorgeous. Oh, they are. They absolutely are. I almost prefer the hand-drawn style to the new modern, like spoilers alert, I don't have any new, any Disney film beyond 2000 on my list. Oh, wow. It's all older styles i have i have one more on my list from uh post 2000s but but i agree with you that it, it it's almost refreshing now because everything almost looks so similar now to to go back and see some of those older things and to really just admire the craft at hand oh absolutely yeah so as far as like captain hook where do you think he ranks among like disney villains i was having this conversation earlier with my girlfriend about like the you know most iconic disney characters or the most iconic disney villains and we both said that hook is up there oh he is up there and i think he's actually one of the more fun ones in terms of just the way he acts and me and that whole clock like in the crocodile how that evolves i think it's one of the more fun ones it's not one that's taken too too seriously but i overall enjoy just watching him yeah, he's also like one of the only Disney villains that's kind of just like a, well, not one of the only, but, you know, of the iconic ones, he's kind of just like a dude. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I will definitely have to check out Peter Pan again. That's that's a good one. And I mean, it's crazy how I'm like every, every now and then because Peter Pan, I believe, is in like, you know, the what is that called? Like when public domain? Yes. You get these adaptations again and again and again and nothing has been as good as the disney animated one it's the only source material book that will ever stay in the public domain because all the rights are given to the great ormond street hospital oh i did not know that yeah it's the only book that will stay forever in the public domain wow all right so that was uh disney's peter pan is amy's number four uh my number four is also another older film um it is 101 dalmatians from 1961. Nice. Not on my list, but definitely one I can't wait to go and rewatch. Yeah. So I did rewatch this one very recently. Um, and I just remember being like enamored by it. This is the film that kind of essentially saved Disney's animation studios department because in 1959, when they released Sleeping Beauty, 
That film was incredibly expensive, and then it absolutely tanked at the box office, and it caused Disney to have to lay off hundreds of animators. So in 1969, they kind of developed this new technology that reduced man hours and made it really significantly cheaper to animate films. And the result was 101 Dalmatians, which now, like after subsequent releases and everything, has grossed like $303 million, which is pretty crazy. And I was just reading up on it a little bit, and it's the 17th feature film, and it's the first one to take place completely in contemporary society. So, I mean, you said Peter Pan uh, has, you know, that beginning part in London, but 101 Dalmatians completely takes place in London and the outside boroughs. And I think that kind of like contemporary style really adds to the film and how it feels the animation is like kind of endearingly shoddy it's a little like like you can tell that it's cheaper uh some of the backgrounds aren't quite as detailed and you really see the pencil lines a lot more than in things like sleeping beauty or cinderella and i think that makes it feel very different in the uh than other disney films that came before it so it's not like a magical film in the same way that a lot of disney films are but it still has that like magic to it because there's so many dogs in the movie and it's just this funny and really enjoyable story talk about a film that subverts expectations like i went in like when i was a kid just wanting to watch a bunch of cute little dogs and it just turned out to be a lot darker than i originally expected which is something i don't think we see from disney as much nowadays yeah and i'm really glad that you brought that up because like i mean it's a good comparison to peter pan with captain hook is you've got this villain here, Cruella DeVille, who is probably more famous than the movie itself, I would say. Oh, yeah, about a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, she is just an absolutely iconic villain, and you hold her in the same category as characters like Maleficent and, you know, even Darth Vader, Jafar, Captain Hook, people like that. And it's funny because, you know, if you compare her to somebody like Maleficent or Darth Vader or Jafar, they're all kind of trying to take over the world or the galaxy or the kingdom or whatever. She's just trying to have a coat, but she's almost more evil than all of them because she's completely unredeemable because she's killing puppies. (laughs) Like, that's something you don't do. (laughs) It still goes back to us nowadays. A lot of us are like, oh, humans are dying. We don't care. Dogs die in a movie. No, this is where it gets serious. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it'll be really interesting to see how they try and because they're doing a spinoff film called Cruella de Vil, of course, with Emma Stone in it, allegedly, if movies ever get made again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see how they humanize her, because I think the thing that works so well about her character is that she is absolutely unredeemable. She has no moment where she shows any type of like positive character trait whatsoever. I also wouldn't have thought of Emma Stone to play a role, so that'll be interesting to see why they chose her and what direction they would go with her. Yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me the most on the rewatch of this is there's a line where Anita, who is the, you know, the female owner of Pongo and, uh, oh man, I can't even remember the female dog's name, that's bad. Perdita? Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, so Anita is, like, she says something about how Cruella DeVille is her like schoolmate from back in the day. And when I was younger, I just assumed that Cruella was like an 80 year old woman because she is so like uh, skinny and uncomfortable to look at. And she has like black and white hair and 
all this stuff. But apparently she must be relatively the same age as Anita, which just makes her all the more unfortunate. And uh, di- oh, man, she's she's a scary, scary woman. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just think that this movie just really, really works. And I don't know if it's exceptionally better as like a actual film than any of the other multitude of Disney films. But I do really admire the like scrappy underdog pun intended nature of the film because like given the context of how it was released and everything i think it's incredibly well done i think sometimes it is important to consider what happened behind the scenes to really make the film pop and stand out to a particular person absolutely and i it's 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 almost weird to kind of compare animation styles in some of these films like when you are comparing something like frozen to 101 dalmatians they're just playing on completely different fields and they're trying for different things. So I, I wanted to make sure I included some of these older films that weren't necessarily the films that came out when I was born, but the ones that um, were just kind of in the canon and I went back to again and again. So 101 Dalmatians is my number four. All right, Amy, how about your number three? We've had no overlaps so far. No overlaps, and I'm not sure if this will be an overlap either, but my number three is Alice in Wonderland from the same year as Peter Pan. Okay, tell me about Alice in Wonderland. I honestly don't remember anything about that film besides the Mad Hatter. Oh, no, I, I remember bits and pieces. So what works for you with Alice in Wonderland? It's a complete fantasy style, like in contrast to the charm of Peter Pan. I feel like this film is probably the most creative that Disney's mm-hmm. ever done in terms of what they've pushed story-wise and character design and everything just looks so stunning to watch. And once again, like Peter Pan, I grew up knowing the Lewis Carroll story, like I think a lot of people did. And I think that also just stuck with me. And yeah, just overall love the aesthetic and the story and Alice and everything. Yeah, that's, I mean, I mean that's good to hear. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how much I can, I just honestly don't really remember too much about this film. Um, is, is there a particular moment in the, cause it's not an, a musical, is it? It's not, I mean, there's musical sequences like the, uh, happy on birthday, the like tea party with the Mad Hatter. I think there's one of like the queen of hearts as well. I'm not particularly sure, but it's like every scene is so completely different, and yet because of how outlandish it is, they managed to piece it together quite really well. From like the peaceful beginning where she's sitting in the tree and she sees a rabbit, and then it leads to the doors, and then it leads to the Mad Hatter's party, and then the Queen of Hearts. It gets darker and darker and darker, but also mm-hmm. a lot of fun because of the different styles that they're doing, so you're still fairly entertained throughout. So what about um, your thoughts on that villain, the the Queen of Hearts? How how does she compare to people like Cruella de Vil and uh, Captain Hook? Once again, it's just a completely fun design. And she's very much over the top caricature. And I think she's quite hilarious. She's probably the funniest of the villains. <laughs> just both in design and how outlandish and out loud she is. Yeah, she is very over the top. That I can definitely remember that. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the live action version of this film then? Um, that movie famously made over a billion dollars, which I think is crazy. It is insane and I just don't really care for it. I think the fact that it's an- like the animated one has a charm because it's animated. You bring that to real life, 
you kind of take away that potential board of it. You know it's fantasy. And to me, it just tries too hard. Mm-hmm. At least with other versions, it's a lot of fun. This just turned it way too dark, way too gritty. Tried to be way too serious with the topic. And it just lost a lot of the heart for me. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the, or I mean, have you read the like sequel books and everything like that? Do you think those would work as, I mean, I know they did Alice Through the Looking Glass which nobody saw, but do you think those would work as like animated films and things like that? Or do you think that this film kind of just struck magic in a bottle? I remember watching like the animated version of Alice River Looking Glass and enjoying it. It obviously didn't match Alice in Wonderland, but it all depends if they can get a good script for it. Why not? I just don't think it worked in a real life look of the film. Yeah, it was it definitely bordered that line of like way too creepy for me, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Alice in Wonderland was Amy's number three, and that was also from nineteen fifty fifty or fifty two. I can't remember. Nineteen fifty, fifty two, something like that. Yeah. All right. So my number three is uh The Tale as Old as Time. It is Beauty and the Beast from nineteen ninety one. I thought I told you to come down for dinner. I'm not hungry. You'll come out or I'll, I'll, I'll break down the door. Master, I could be wrong, but uh, that may not be the best way to win the girl's affections. Please attempt to be a gentleman. But she is being so difficult. Gently, gently. Will you come down to dinner? No. <laughs> Suave. It would give me great pleasure if you would join me for dinner. (laughs) Please. No, thank you. You can't stay in there forever. Yes, I can. Fine. Then go ahead and starve. If she doesn't eat with me, then she doesn't eat at all. (laughs) Oh, dear. That didn't go very well at all, did it? Do we finally have a crossover? That is on your list? Yes. Awesome. So what is that for you? It's my number one. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, well, why don't I secede the floor to you just for a sec then and tell me why you think this is the number one Disney film. It's the one I grew up watching the most. It's honestly, possibly in like my top 20 films of all time. It's just the magic, the story, the characters, all the designs, all the music in it, it all works together so perfectly. Gaston is such a brilliant villain that you wouldn't expect to be a villain. And it takes the original source and twists so much that you wouldn't expect it if you go back nowadays and read what it was based off. I think this is just like a classic film in in all definitions of that saying like you know it's it's a classic story they say it's a tale as old as time uh it this film just feels very iconic to everything that is disney it's like the quintessential disney movie in the sense that you've got the princess story but around it you have this beautifully fleshed out world with all this magic and intrigue and again you do have that villain that's very iconic i think it's really funny that we're talking about villains so much in these films because it seems like a lot of Disney films are defined by their villains. But yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the story is just really well told once you get past that first problematic part of the film that kind of 
makes it a Stockholm syndrome abusive relationship kind of thing. Um, but when I, I mean, that's, it's such a, a weird part of this film, but I, I was trying to think through this and what really works about this film is despite that part where Belle's kind of being held against her will, which is of course really a problem and kind of makes beast in, I think a lot of viewers eyes and I can see it happen a lot that like, you know, that's a little unredeemable. Like you can't, you can't make somebody fall in love with you if you're holding them against their will. But if you kind of just, you know, look at the film out of that context, then I think the relationship between the two works very well. And the relationship of them kind of growing and bonding over feeding those birds and showing that the beast is actually a warm character. Um, you know, you have the iconic ballroom scene. You have them bonding over eating soup because the beast hasn't eaten food in front of somebody you know, in years, um, having them read books together, all of that stuff, I think works really, really well. And that relationship would naturally develop that way if Belle was there by choice, which is, um, I think why the film still works, uh, for a lot of people. I think it's also important that they included the scene right after ballroom where the beast lets her go as mm-hmm. if he really realizes I can't win your love by keeping you here. You have to go off and your freedom and your life is more important than me winning your love this way. Yeah, that, that definitely does help. <laughs> and then she does choose to go back and everything. So, so that is really good. Do you think there's a way that you could rewrite this story to have it so that Belle is somehow there voluntarily? I was doing this thought exercise and I mean, at first I was like, maybe it's lazy writing that they just kind of have her trapped there, but I couldn't really come up with a feasible way to have her in the castle voluntarily, you know? I can't either, honestly. Yeah. No, I don't (laughs) know how it would work because he already has all the teapots and the candelabras and all that doing the chores for him why would he need a human to come in and suddenly be a servant or stay there voluntarily yeah on that note it is kind of messed up that the lady decided or the enchantress decided to curse all the servants in the castle as well to you know (laughs) punish them for the beast sins like there are children there there's a whole bunch of children theoretically because chip has a bunch of brothers and sisters in the cupboard in that one scene so she just cursed a bunch of children that seems a little uncool oh yeah <laughs> i think it kind of speaks like nowadays where if a boss is shitty or somebody is is real being really bad it kind of affects everyone around him which really shouldn't so if a boss is treating people badly and say boycott that company all the workers are punished as well for no reason yeah, yeah, that's actually a good point. And yeah, I, I've never thought of it that way. And I mean, I think there's a line in the um, the live action version, which I am not a fan of, but uh, there is a line that says that the reason that all of the workers or the servants were punished was because like they were letting him get away with being a shitty person, which I don't know if that logic really holds up, but at least there's a reason for the Enchantress deciding to, you know, ruin a whole bunch of people's lives, including children and a dog. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I think even like despite all of those things, I, I really love when a film becomes so popular and famous that you can watch it. And part of the fun of watching it is like poking 
fun at some of the logic of it. I think that that's true for Harry Potter films and for Lord of the Rings. Like I watch those and I really enjoy going, oh, that's silly or that's campy or that's cheesy. And I think the reason that despite all the problems that this film works is that it has that good message, that really, really wholesome Disney message of loving people for their insides, not their outsides. And the juxtaposition between the really beautiful Gaston being a very ugly person inside and the very ugly beast being actually good natured on the inside. So I think everything really works about this film. And I do not judge you for having it as your number one. I think that's a great number one. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Amy, what is your number two film then? This is the last film on your list that we haven't talked about. Yes, so my number two, we're going all the way back to the very start, 1937, with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Oh, wow. So first is the best for you. Well, not the best, but almost the best. Almost the best, yeah. It's once again one I grew up watching all the time, but if you go back and look at 1930, like this started being made in 1934 and took about three years. Walt Disney took out millions to get this made and it's incredible to see how well it still holds up to this day after over 80 years now which is quite hard to believe but the story still holds up the characters are still as fun to watch the animation is stunning for back in 1937 when it all had to be manually hand-drawn frame by frame and it's not a short film either it's like 90 odd minutes it's not one of our 60 70 minute films oh really it doesn't feel like it. If you, I watched it and it flew by so quickly because of the pacing and the story and how simple it was, yet how many fun moments there were throughout. What are your thoughts as Snow White as a protagonist? Because I know in a lot of the films that are kind of in the Disney princess umbrella, a lot of them have sort of a flaw where the, the central character is kind of out of commission for the climax of the film, right? You've got Sleeping Beauty, where she's literally asleep um, <laughs> while Prince Philip fights Maleficent. And then even in Cinderella, you've got her locked up in a cupboard or in a, you know, up, locked up in a tower while the mice are trying to get the key from the stepsister. So, so what, um, what happens in the climax of this film and how is Snow White integral to the, the story in that way? Well, there's like two different stories which seem to work. So you've got the first story, which is Snow White versus the Evil Queen. Mm-hmm. And then you still have the traditional love story of Snow White trying to get Prince Charming. But it doesn't feel like that until right at the end when the coffin scene comes and Prince comes to actually kiss her. We don't The focus isn't on the prince throughout a majority of the film. It's mostly about Snow White trying to survive herself and trying to help everyone around, whether it's animals, whether it's a dwarf, she always puts them before herself. So I really like that trait about her, about how selfless she is. Like she wants a prince, but she's not going to put that first before everyone else. And isn't kind of the thing that the the evil queen takes advantage of that genuine niceness of hers, right? Doesn't she dress up as like an old lady and try to offer an apple to her and Snow White is kind of like, nice to her and and all of that am i remembering that right this is another one that i haven't seen for a long time yeah you are right on that so yeah i i mean i think what's really cool about these uh older films is that they came out at a time where like animation was such a novel thing that they could just get away with telling like a really well made story 
and they don't necessarily have to be something that's like philosophically much deeper than this is just a really good story and really great animation. And I think that's true about films like 101 Dalmatians and Peter Pan and, and some of the other ones on your list. And I think it's definitely true about Snow White, where it's just like a classic fairy tale brought to life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those films either came out right before the war, right after the war. So that's the sort of content that they were wanting to consume, something that's not too heavy or too dark to think about. They just wanted to go and escape to a fantasy land and be satisfied for nearly two hours. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I didn't even think of that. So number two was Snow White, the very first film that uh, the Walt Disney Animated Studios ever released. So my number two is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. It is one of the later ones. Uh, It is Wreck-It Ralph from 2012. Nice. I really do enjoy that one. Yeah, I I love this film so much. So I recently rewatched this. I think this is probably the funniest film that Disney has ever put out. Every single character, like 90% of what they say, just makes me laugh. So I'm just laughing this whole movie. And I think Vanellope von Schweetz is probably one of my favorite Disney characters of all time. Nice. I think she toes that line perfectly of annoying and endearing in a way that a lot of characters, especially in animation, but also characters like uh, Jar Jar Binks, for example, I think (laughs) they very much struggle to toe that line. And I think Vanellope von Schweetz does it perfectly. Like she is annoying and obnoxious, but she's also so adorable and genuine and everything she says is funny. I love her voice. I think Sarah Silverman does an amazing job at bringing that character to life. But I think the thing that struck me the most on this most recent rewatch is that the script of this film is so sharp and efficient and it introduces these world building concepts that are paid off later in the film in a way that is so fluid and natural that like every time something is introduced, it doesn't feel like you're being given setup that is going to be paid off later in the film. It feels like you're just kind of learning information naturally about the world that you're experiencing. Oh, absolutely. I think this is the most frustrated I've been at the Academy for thinking Brave is somehow better than this. Yes. Gonna be worth Pixar films, let alone this being like easily top 20 Disney for me. Yes, thank you. I that that bothered me so much because I also don't think Brave is very good. Um, I know that's a much more troubled, you know, production and everything. And Scottish as well. So if I don't like Brave, I don't get who is. (laughs) That is, yeah, that's really damning, actually. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so I mean, there there are things in Wreck It Ralph. Like you've got like Turbo's backstory and the Cybugs becoming what they eat. You know, the Cybugs needing a beacon or else they get. You know, they they will just eat everything in their past. And then like the Diet Cola Mountain, all of that stuff just feels like when you're watching it in the moment, it's like, oh, yeah, cool. That's a cool, smart little piece of storytelling. And then it all gets paid off in that climax. And I think that that is my favorite type of storytelling is when a film is so engaging in the moment um, that you don't realize that what you're being given is information that's obvious in retrospect, uh, just kind of set up material. This is a true example of a film that trusts its audience to know what it's talking about and not having to spoon feed them every single bit of information. Yeah, yeah, that's really, yeah, I completely agree. And also, you know, they do come up with good ways to give exposition. So they've got the Jane Lynch character who's new to the game. So it allows Fixit Felix to basically just give an exposition dump of what Turbo is and what going Turbo means. 
I really appreciated that because I think there's a lot of times in movies and especially kids movies where somebody just does an exposition dump that's like it doesn't really make sense in the context of those two characters and their relationship but it makes perfect sense in this film oh absolutely and uh, if you will allow me to just gush about this film a little bit more (laughs) um (laughs) you know i i love the turbo reveal that king candy is turbo that is a twist that i think really really works for me because it's a twist that in retrospect makes complete sense and is completely obvious. But honestly, the first time I saw it, I was blown away by the twist. I did not see it coming at all. I do think this is one of like the top five smartest scripts from Disney. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, then, you know, I we talked a little bit about how the older films like to just be very straightforward stories and they usually have a very fairy tale esque moral or uh, message at the center of it that's like, you know, be nice or uh, that's a lot of them, honestly. <laughs> but um, I think as Disney has evolved as a company and as animation has evolved, some of these later films start to become more thematic and have a little bit of a deeper meaning to them. And I think the obvious one that most people think about is Zootopia, which is clearly a metaphor for racism and stereotyping and things like that. But in this film, I think there's a lot of deeper subtext about disabilities and um, kind of disorders and how those things can be seen as a crutch or, or a crux or something like that. But they are actually what makes each of the characters special. And so you've got this Vanellope character who is made fun of for being a glitch. And I think the glitch idea and kind of the spazzy nature of her character is very Um, it's a really good parallel to something like autism or ADHD. And in the end, there's that really great line about all the racers accepting her uh, glitch and all. And that seems to kind of parallel the idea that like, uh, specifically autism and ADHD is not something that should be seen as like this damning flaw or abnormality, but it's actually something that, you know, makes you, you. And I think that's a really sweet message. And I really love that this film can be viewed as something with a little bit deeper subtext because at the surface, it is like, a, oh, it's just a, you know, taking advantage of video game nostalgia. And also, I think we were talking about earlier about how nowadays the animation looks quite similar between the Disney films. This is the one exception where they have so much fun with the animation style between video game characters, the world, the different games and it looks completely different to every other Disney film that's being made right now because of that. Absolutely. I want to play Sugar Rush so badly. <laughs> <laughs> like, that seems like such a fun game. <laughs> it really does. So, Wreck-It Ralph from 2012 is my number two. So, we already gave your number one, which was Beauty and the Beast. So, I will just hop straight into the last film. This is my number one film, which I believe you already know what it is. I know what it is. <laughs> it is The Lion King from 1994. What was that? <laughs> the weather. <laughs> Very peculiar. Don't you think? Yeah. Looks like the winds are changing. Ah, uh, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. (laughs) Yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it, 
or learn from it. I think that's going to be one everyone's shocked when they find out that's not in your top five. Yeah, I was shocked that it was not in yours. Yeah, I don't know. I think everyone has some sort of nostalgia or love for it that I just never really grew up with it. And I have some like problems with the actual narrative and the fact that I'm not truly engaged in all the characters in the story personally. Wow, hot takes here. I know it's a lot of people's favorite Disney movie. So I'm just curious, what are some of the those things? Because I agree with you that like there are definitely parts in the script that are, you know, you have to give them a little bit of leeway if you want this to make complete sense. I'm thinking of things like it's sort of bullshit that Simba doesn't realize that he's getting conned by Scar and things like that. Um, I mean, he is a kid, but there's a couple wonky things in here. I'm, I'm curious what are some of your... Uh, I don't know if issues is the right word, but... It's more pacing. Like, I love the first half when Simba is just a little cub and the build-up to the death of Mufasa and all of that. It's as mo- it's a moment that he runs away and the Hakuna Matata goes, and it just skips so much time and it feels so rushed. And then, for me, the character development just kind of drops. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked something in the middle to really flesh out all the characters, because to me, it seems like... Timon and Pumbaa have no development whatsoever. They just seem to be there for pure entertainment. And I wish they just had something else to do in the story. Yeah, the the most recent time that I rewatched this, I was surprised by how short the time is that you actually get to spend with adult Simba. Yeah. I didn't realize that it was that short. It's it's. I mean, uh, I should probably check this, but it does feel like it's about like 20 minutes of a 90 minute film. So I, I see what you're saying. And I think... There is like, you know, there's very much uh, the initial part of the film is very much like Simba clearly wants to be king and he he's a rifle heir and he's a little cocky and arrogant and things like that. And then there is this change that is essentially caused by living with the outcasts of society to realize that a lot of those things don't really matter. Uh, And then there's a pretty quick turnaround where he realizes that, no, they actually do matter. Um, So I I can agree with that regardless it is still my number one film um (laughs) i think you know a lot of disney films like we've said have excellent music and this is also one that has excellent music but i think on top of it you know the music in this film is sort of like a cherry on top of a sunday that is already has just what i think are really dynamic characters uh the animation is gorgeous in this film which is Again, something that you can say about almost every Disney film, except for some of the ones in the early 2000s. But I think one of the things that's kind of maybe it's a bit of an exaggeration to say underappreciated, but the score of this film by Hans Zimmer is completely cinematic. It is like one of the most bombastic scores that I've seen in a uh, animated film. It's probably the most iconic as well. Like, I don't think I can name another animated movie that has such a presence in its score alone. Yeah, because you have a lot of these films that live and die with the music or the the songs, but very few of them have like a a really defining score. I think going back to Beauty and the Beast really quickly, I think the score in that was also something that I noticed in this most recent rewatch that it was really a uh, really really good score and it added to the kind of the the epicness of that movie yeah absolutely but uh yeah i mean the epic nature of this film 
is I think what really works for it. And I think that might be why a lot of people love it. I have one other theory on that, but I really like that this film feels so grand and Shakespearean, which like, obviously it feels Shakespearean because it's almost (laughs) the exact same story as Hamlet. Um, (laughs) but I also mean that kind of the melodrama of the characters and the sort of like how serious all the characters take themselves with the exception of Timon and Pumbaa, like the melodrama of, you know, uncle versus nephew and the conflicting ideologies between Nala and Simba that feels all very like dramatic and played out in this sort of almost theatrical way that I don't feel is very common for films that are purely about animals. Yeah. This is definitely an epic, and it also feels epic because of the world building and the scale and the fact we know don't go to that area, it's so far away, it's so dark. We get a true sense of the danger of this area, it's not just confinement into one piece. Yeah, this isn't really a film that I think about world building when I think about it, but you're right that there is a lot of just natural world building because you are more or less in a fantasy world, right? Like. Yes. You know, if these aren't African animals, they could be witches and wizards and stuff like that. And then you've got a completely brand new world. (laughs) It doesn't have to be in Africa, I guess. Um, And you also do, of course, have that kind of spiritual aspects of the film from Rafiki and the struggles with destiny and, you know, dealing with your past and the emotional struggles of losing a parent and all of this stuff. There is a lot of that sort of chosen one fantasy narrative in this film, even though technically there's nothing fantastical about it. So that's, that's really cool. I I'm just not realizing that now I love this film so much, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not going to judge anyone that does love it just because it's not my personal favorite. I know a majority of people would put this as the best Disney animated film of all time. Yeah, and that's why I feel like a little bad putting it as number one because it's almost like the obvious answer. Um, I think Beauty the Beast is the second most obvious answer, so I'm not much better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, just one more thing. I, I think one of the parts of this movie that is like a huge charm of the film is that it is, aside from Dinosaur, the only Disney film that has like zero human characters in it. Unless you count films like Zootopia, where they're like anthropomorphized animals. But there's no presence of humans in this film. And I think that really helps make the animal characters feel more human than some human characters in other animated films. Hence why I don't think it fully works as a live action film, as most people also agree with. Yeah. Oh, geez. That. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That fucking film. I... Try not to cuss on my Disney podcast, but like that, oh man, it is. it just doesn't work at all. No, I think it worked best, ironically, with Timon and Pumbaa, yep. who are like the two people I don't really like this much in this film <laughs> because they completely distract from the tone. But for that film, I don't know if it was the voice performances or the fact that their dialogue changed drastically to help suit the situation. They're the only part that worked. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, they're the only part that works because they're almost, like, aware that they're in a remake. Yeah. Because their, like, dialogue is different and they comment on how it's different. I love the part in um, Hakuna Matata when uh, Seth Rogen's Pumbaa is like, aren't you going to stop me from saying farting? And uh, Timon's like, no, you disgust me. And I just thought that was a perfect little 
clever nod to the original and it's very means that the film is very aware that it's a remake which i feel like these films should do more often um but uh yeah anyways in the beast joke that was the one part where i was like okay this film sort of understands what it <laughs> could do and it's just not doing it yeah yeah i i really hope that i mean it, it's funny that i feel like almost every single film on our list has had a live action remake besides uh wreck it ralph and frozen but those are because those are you know new <laughs> also I, I i struggle to see how you could do a live action remake of wreck it ralph yeah that whole thing is based on animated video games if you suddenly make that real life there's like another layer of separation that i just don't think people would be able to get past yeah, I, I really hope that they leave that one alone. But, you know, like, oh. I'm sure they won't. I'm <laughs> sure they won't. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, I mean, The Lion King, it's my number one, and it's a great film. And if somehow you've managed to avoid it all these years, definitely go back. It still holds up so well. So, All right, so those were our lists. Uh, Amy, why don't you just count down from uh, number five, your list entries one more time perfect so my number five is hercules my number four is peter pan number three is alice in wonderland number two is snow white and the seven dwarves and number one is be and the beast and my number five is frozen my number four is 101 dalmatians my number three is beauty and the beast number two is wreck it ralph and number one is the lion king it just goes to show with one crossover yeah, I was just about I to say. I didn't mention like my number six and my number seven. They didn't even get mentioned at all. What are your number six and seven? Any honorable mentions? Uh, Tangled and Aladdin. Oh, those are both really good. I, I like seriously considered both of those as entries on this list. And I think, you know, I, I wanted to include 101 Dalmatians as kind of like a nod to some of the older films, but you know, it easily could have been replaced by like Tangled or Aladdin or Tarzan. Cinderella was the first film I ever watched ever. So oh, wow. that one has a special place in my heart. So I thought about including that on the list. I mean, I think our list, the differences in them really go to show that like, this has got to be the strongest group of films from a studio by a long shot, in my opinion, like they're just all so good. Oh, shut up. I don't I don't begrudge any of the choices that you have on your list because they're all just such good films and same of yours. All right. So this has been our episode counting down the top five Walt Disney Animation Studios films of all time. That is kind of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. This was awesome. I am glad I woke up early for this. It was great. Hopefully I can have you back on the podcast soon. Anytime. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, if you want to keep up with me, the best way of doing that is through my Twitter at Films with Amy. Okay, great. And I will definitely provide that link as well as a link to your website um, and some of the most recent pieces you've done. I think you just recently had a piece on Snow White, right? Because that's the start. Yes. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at Incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. 
You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at moviemarathoners.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And of course, any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through a TBD topic. Stay tuned for that one. Until then, bye. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.